0: Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Dr. Lisa Miller, the author of the new book, The Awakened Brain The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. Dr. Miller is a New York Times bestselling author and a professor in the clinical psychology program at Teachers College, Columbia University. She's the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind-Body Institute, which is the first Ivy League graduate program and research institute in spirituality and psychology. In the conversation, Dr. Miller and I discuss navigating science and spirituality, finding meaning in life, the science of desire and clinging, wisdom and nature, letting life unfold, and so much more. I really enjoyed this one and hope you do as well. But before we bring on our guest, I just want to take a moment and say Thank you to the listeners, whether you're new or a longtime listener, I am truly humbled by how much this show and our weekly newsletter has grown, especially in the last six months. So I can only imagine that's from many of you sharing the episodes and telling others about the podcast. So thank you so much. Now, without any further delay, let's bring on our guest. Please welcome the wise and gracious Dr. Lisa Miller. Lisa, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you so much for taking the time. Well, it is an absolute pleasure. I'm excited to talk about your new book, The Awakened Brain. But before we get into the book, I wanted to talk about you're the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind-Body Institute. Would you mind sharing a little bit about the mission and, and what you're up to there? The
1: Spirituality Mind-Body Institute is a research big tank. It's a place of convening. And it's actually also the home of a graduate program that takes the spiritual reality to be primary in the human journey. And even as the road through struggle, mental health, challenges, suffering, the Spirituality My Body Institute takes a foundationally spiritual view to the human journey. And this we were able to build because it's based on a very strong science now of about two decades that shows that indeed human beings are foundationally spiritual beings. So we practically took the roadmap of science and said, well, we know that through basic science, MRI studies, genotyping studies, long-term clinical course studies, spirituality is foundational to human development, to prevention of the most prevalent forms of suffering. Human spirituality is foundational to relational ethics, to wellness, to the character strengths and virtues. In order to really be helpful to people, we need to put the spiritual core back into the whole person. And the way that the Spirituality Mind-Body Institute has operationalized that is to really try to seed a more spiritual society through using the roadmap of science.
0: Well, I love that. And as the subtitle of your book references the new science of spirituality, it, it reminds me of Pope John Paul II back in the, in the late 90s, put out an, an encyclical that I recently came across a couple years ago. But it talks about the relationship between faith and reason. And he described them as two wings of a bird or, or both being essential. Do you see science and spirituality that way as two wings, if you will? And if so, what might be the roles of, of each of those wings?
1: It's such a beautiful image, and I'm so glad you brought that forward, because I do think that reason actually propels faith, and faith propels reason. I think, indeed, two wings of one bird. When I talk about ways of knowing to my students and in, when I speak of the science um, to various communities, whether it's you know, healers or scientists or business people or the military, as you know, um, I think of the table of human knowing within each and every one of us, that inside every one of us there's a table of human knowing at which is seated the empiricist, the logician, and so too the intuitive and the mystic and the skeptic. And when we can get all of our forms of perception, all of our different ways of knowing, working together, we have what has been shown by neuroscience to be the ultimate functioning brain. We have the most innovative solutions. We have the most ethical life. We come up with win-win answers, not 0 sum game answers. So this is really the realization of who we are, and I think your metaphor is that hope is absolutely powerful. That is how we soar. That is
0: how we fly. Well, I'm really excited to to get into the book. Um, there's a question that I ask most guests to kick off the, the conversation, and it's something along the lines of what started this particular search for whatever their area of interest is. And many times the response is something around those teenage years, whether a professor or experience, something has opened their eyes to a new way of, of seeing, if you will, and, and started a quest. What, what do you, what's going on in, the, in that late teens time frame for us as humans? And, and what do you mean by that word quest?
1: So I'll dial it back then to really that time in my own life. You know, Josh, I had grown up with a profoundly spiritual mother, spiritual and religious, um, meaning that she felt a deep, deep, deep closeness to who we call God, whether everyone says higher power, Jesus, or the universe. But we, she was very, very close and prayed out loud, and she felt the presence of God so strongly that she would cry. Sit so down to dinner, my brother and I come back from you know biking for hours around the neighborhood, caked with dirt, sit down and she'd say, God thank you for these children. And she'd get tears in her eyes. And I could see in my mother's profound experience of the sacred of the higher power that that of course, you know, there was more than flesh and bone. Of course there was more than you know, simply the sort of material aspect of life, because my mother could see it. So You know, I couldn't wait to go off to college and look for the ultimate meaning in life. You know, dig for life's true purpose, figure out the meaning of life, and then go live one. That was my goal in going to college. And I showed up at college and I signed up for philosophy. I got in class and really, you know, ninety-eight percent of the folks did not think there was anything built into the nature of reality itself, of significance, did not, you know, whether we say God or spirit, did not think that there was meaning or a purpose or an ultimate presence in true life. It was really a very empty existential echo, a really echo chamber, as, as life was understood. And so I thought, wow, philosophy is really depressing. But I went down the hall and I took world religions. But the world religions weren't taught at the level of felt transcendence of lived spirituality you know it was these folks over here think about it this way and those folks over there at this corner of the earth they think about it another way but there was no deep nod or appreciation of life's ultimate presence and you know as i continued down my journey in college i i really started to wonder wow what if you know there really isn't i mean everything you ever told me mom and dad everything that i felt and knew Everywhere I look now in college, I hear that there is no God, there is no purpose. Life's empty. Life is only constructed. Ideas are no more than what we make. We could have made them another way, and they're equally as good. Morals have no ultimate significance. We can cherry pick them, maybe drive them by hedonics. So I, I really ended up thinking as a teenager, 1920. Wow, what if there is? no meaning deeply in life and that if can really take that seriously is a terrifying echo chamber that is a very painful pill and it got worse and worse so much so that i became depressed and i went to a therapist and i said i really can't find the meaning in life and the therapist quickly dialed into my childhood and wondered, and I had a great childhood, really loved, and what could have gone wrong, and you know, was there conditional love? No, no, totally. Yeah, and that didn't seem very fruitful, so I went to another therapist who instead of being a sort of backward-looking, dynamic therapist was a cognitive therapist and wanted me to sort of build up my self-esteem. And, you know, I you know, could think about things differently, but I didn't have a problem with my self-esteem. I wanted to know if life had meaning. And this quest of my head really started to feel like I was running on a treadmill, getting nowhere, but getting very exhausted and very tired. And I started to look horrible, and I felt horrible. And I finally went home after sophomore year and took a trip down to the shore and looking out over the light on the ocean. I knew in a very deep part of myself, not my spinning head, not the habit trail of the treadmill, but of course God exists, but of course there's light and love written into the universe. And that but of course came from what we might call the knowing of the heart. So these nagging, nagging, nagging of the head the entire sophomore year spent through empiricism and logic alone to try to resolve the meaning of life only got an answer when I listened to the knowing of the heart, this direct, mystical, intuitive knowing of the heart. And it was sure. I mean, I didn't second guess it, I I knew it. It came with that message of certainty. And that's when I went back to college as a junior and realized that I was being educated halfway, or put another way, only half of my brain was being educated. And my life's work then became to pull together with I was calling the table of human knowing so that we might, I might, and one might in their work as a therapist or in understanding the human condition, fully hold at the table the depth through intuition, mystical awareness, the knowing of the heart that brings us into a certain connection with the spirit in life. And that is what I've found through science, looking through all sorts of lenses, including MRI machines and long-term clinical course studies and epidemiological studies that is what i found through science makes us whole to be able to have a deep capacity for spiritual connection into life with one another with our higher power a deep sense of connection with the spirit through life and then be able to throw that to the head and think about what does that mean for my action what does that mean for my morals it's the heart governing the head Mm -hmm. and it is completely the opposite of an education in which the head and the strivings and yearnings and narrow desires of the individual guide the appetites of the heart, which leads to nothing but competition and greed.
0: Well, that is is beautiful, Lisa. I really appreciate you you sharing some some background on your, your journey and quest thus far. This idea of of the heart and the in the head. And as you've discussed so far, the the science and neuroscience backing this up, what would you say is at, at stake for us as a society if we ignore this science of, of spirituality?
1: So we have this broad host of problems that we read every day in the paper and across papers and across websites. The epidemic of pain and suffering in young adults. So, Rebecca Murthy, our Surgeon General, put forth a once in an administration call, all hands on deck, to address the extraordinary pain that is felt by teens and young adults right now. So, you know, in middle, late adolescence into adulthood, we've never had such elevated rates of depression. Right now, over half of teens and young adults feel that they are suffering, express feeling depressed. The rate of death by suicide has surpassed the rate of death by auto accident as the number one killer and is pushing down from high school into middle school. So we've never had this, right? And right as we look at this sharp escalation in the rates of the diseases of despair, really painful, heartfelt isolation, worthlessness, meaninglessness, anger, we see an equally sharp decline in the strength of personal spiritual life, in the fortification. You know, I described my mother. Well, a lot of people had mothers like that. The fortification of the spiritual life of the child. This is our challenge, is that we have taken A culture which 40 years ago had in the air and water some sense of connection to an ultimate source of life, whether one's family said God or Allah or Hashem or didn't know if they believed in God. It was in the air and water of our culture that there was a deep force of life and guidance. Well, in the very good effort to be inclusive, we threw all religion out of the public square 40 years ago. And with that, with the spiritual baby, with the backwater. And we now have a generation of young people who were raised by parents, right, 40 years is long enough for someone to grow up, have a baby they grow up. They've never in their life had the opportunity to read any sacred text, any any sacred text, or sit by their parents' side while they pray or meditate or reflect into the deeper nature of reality, it's just not in the air and water. So the natural spiritual core, born into every child, we know this through twin studies, that every one of us is a naturally spiritual being, but that it must be fortified, it must be strengthened, like a muscle, through life, not lay atrophy. That just hasn't happened for so many young people. And so we have this ironic, really painful puzzle where Gen Z, in many respects, walks the walk of spiritual values. I mean, Gen Z is the least racist generation. Gen Z is the most inclusive generation. Gen Z is careful about how they speak, that you know, I, Gen Z doesn't take what's not theirs. They're very ethical in so many ways and yet suffer so terribly, and I think the missing piece in the puzzle, what we didn't give our children who are now Gen Z, is this deep understanding, this deep-felt capacity to connect to the higher power. And it's ironic because here they are so very good and kind outwardly to all and yet suffer inside. And this can be changed. You know, Again, we are naturally spiritual beings. The fact that it is lay atrophy, it is still there, this capacity, this neuro seat spiritual awareness and it can be strengthened. So Gen Z has available to them the way out of this pit, a straight ascension up out of this pit.
0: Your your words really connect with a a previous guest I had on the show probably a, a year ago or so now, um, Deleep Jesti, the author of Wiser, who studies the scientific roots of, of wisdom and, and that's what he's dedicated his life to. And he connects it with a component of, of wisdom, this idea of spirituality, but not necessarily religion or religiosity, but some sort of connection to something larger. How, for someone that is not interested in Any connection with a particular religious path? How do we become more more spiritual?
1: So, Josh, first of all, you know, you raise a very, very important point. We are all born with a spiritual brain. And whether I am Hindu, Catholic, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or spiritual and not religious, we all have the same spiritual brain. So I mean, well, first of all, this addresses squarely your point. Which is that whether I am perceiving and sort of conceptualizing, remember there's one third innate, two thirds environmentally formed is this capacity. So, what I call it, how I know it, how I fashion it, you know, that could be through a range of names for the higher power, or I could say, I feel the presence in it through life. I feel one with all the universe. I feel in dynamic relationship with an unfolding guiding presence through life. Whatever that might be called, we are all born with the same capacity to see and know this presence. And that means that whether it is through a theistic understanding or it is through maybe a sense of spirit in through all nature, that my cathedral is the forest or the tip of the mountain in Glacier National Park. That capacity and the deep felt transcendent relationship is all of ours. And I can tell you that, you know, I think of sometimes numbers as a universal language. And so for someone who's curious about that experience, that phenomenological experience and what that maps onto scientifically, what are the numbers here? I can describe the use, the documentation, if you will, of our brain in a way that I think may hold that experience for someone within or without of a faith tradition. And here's the MRI story. The MRI story, again, this is published in Oxford University Press cerebral cortex, it's published in JAMA, and this is mainstream peer reviewed science. There are three major components to spiritual awareness, what I call the awakened brain. One, is it just as we were held and loved as children in our parents, our grandparents' arms. The bonding network is engaged and we are engaged with this deeper presence in and through life so that we perceive, it's not just the belief or our idea, we feel and know that we are loved and we're held, cradled. The second dimension in the brain is that we move, there's a portion in our brain called the parietal, The parietal effectively puts in and out heart boundaries so that we are able, when there's a pulsing of the parietal to perceive, to to know. Again, not a theory, not a belief. We know that just as we are magnificently diverse and unique and we have different GPS coordinates and are, you know, I say to my students, we are a point in a time, we are also a wave. We are a point in a wave. We are also literally part of a oneness. We are able to perceive that we're distinct and have our body suit, and I am a woman that lives and in New York, and I have these very sort of splintered identity points, but I also feel myself as part of the oneness of all life, part of the unit of reality of all creation. That sense of knowing that we are part of the oneness of life, and that's all the family of life, it's fellow living beings, it's the spirit, or I would say, God's presence, one's words could be anything. The force, the natural force of your life, that oneness and separateness at once, toggling back and forth, lets us know that we are never alone. So we are loved and held. We are never alone. And then the third piece is something that I think should be a great relief to people, particularly now, which is that much of our life is approached from a sort of dogged, top down point of view. I'm going to strategize, I'm going to tactically lay out my life to go after what I want. You know, I want this job or I want to marry this guy or I want to lose weight or I want to accomplish X, Y, and Z. Well, I want it um, sort of terminates in this bright red door. And I'm going to throw that red door open and on the other side is everything I want. Sometimes we do everything just right. From command control, we do A and B and C and we line it up. And we reach for the red door, and it's jammed. I mean, it is stuck. And that can be extremely surprising because we did everything right from we command control. We I read all the right books, I went to the right training program, and I was all queued up to dot, 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 and it didn't work. Or, my goodness, we dated for three years, and we decided we were gonna get married, and then, what, you know, change it? So, when that red door stuck, very often, Those are moments of depression and despair, lack of control. But from a spiritual perspective, we shift from a top-down dorsal to a bottom-up ventral attention network and suddenly pivot maybe 40 or 120 degrees and see a wide-open yellow door. And this shift from the narrow pursuit of the bowling alley, red door, red door, to a broad field of possibilities where suddenly a yellow door pops is a shift in attention that is very commonly shared with people during a spiritual experience. So right as we feel loved and held and never alone, we also derive a sense, wow, yellow door, I didn't know there were yellow doors. And on the other side is someone even more right for me. And on the other side is a job that I didn't even know existed. It is guidance. Love, held, never alone, and guided. That is a perceptual stance. It is not a theory or a theology. It is a way of seeing life and feeling that we're all endowed with. But we need to choose to engage the capacity and practice and build it. And whether that's through being in nature and paying attention or through our prayers or through reading poetry, listening to music, reading sacred texts, we open to this broader field of awareness and life becomes much less about living on a bowling alley where we chase after what we want and get or don't get what we want. And it's much more about Loving in this very profound way, um, people and fellow beings. It's much more about these surprising hairpin turns in the road, where we are guided to something far more wonderful than we even knew was possible. So it's more about a discovery.
0: To stay with this metaphor of the red door in yellow door, this idea of living in uncertainty or allowing life to unfold is, is is that the, the yellow, yellow door?
1: Yes. And I think that we are really in pain right now, individually and all together as a country, maybe even a post-industrial global culture, because we are stuck on how do I make a move? You know, we were trained in school, Go after the red door. You know, I shared with you, I couldn't wait to get to college to learn about the meaning of life. But what I learned about was there was no meaning, and you better go get some red doors, you know, get those doors open. And here's how you pick the lock, and here's how you kick it down, and here's how you strategize. Well, that way of being in the world has gotten us into suffering, but to narrowly monolithically only engage in what I call achieving awareness. We, we do need achieving awareness, but to only do that is actually created our suffering. It's said that there's nothing more than that which we can control and get that really matters. And relationships, well, they're great, but what have you done for me lately? They're sort of really transactional. You know, I am dating the Best athlete at my school, I am marrying the wealthiest guy I am with the smartest game. It's the commodification of one another and treating each other like items you know, purchased on Amazon. And I think that there's a whole other way of being that we're yearning for that we're hungry for. And it's, it's an awakened way of being if our relationships are not transactional. They are loving and transformational When we touch each other and change each other's hearts when we show up at remarkable moments and help each other through tough times. Um, So I think we're looking to rebuild our culture in a much more awakened way, where just as we can feel loved and held and guided by God, we can show up for one another to be loving and holding and guiding. And this form of relational spirituality is seen in places like AA. Why do we need to bottom out to do it? Let's do it now. This is seen in faith communities very often, but many people these days are not part of a faith community or at odds with the human foibles of a leader in a faith community. So there's a real sense in which living by achieving alone is bottoming out. As a society, we are bottoming out. And there is a creative way forward, it's an inspired way forward, and it's to awaken to who we really are, to life itself and to one another. And what an amazing way of living. This is totally at our fingertips. You know, what does it look like? It means I'm at the post office and this poor woman is left there alone. And, you know, everyone's feeling irritated. It is irritating to wait 25 minutes at the post office, but this poor woman is exhausted. And she looks up and she says, this is the worst day of my life. That's, that's a call for help, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a choice in that moment, right, Josh? And we can say, you know, but I want my package mailed and I have to pick up my kid. Or we can be awakened to her experience and say, wow, I am so sorry that this is the worst day of your whole life. And then turn to the next guy and say, Can you imagine this poor woman was left here alone and this is the worst day of her whole life? Can we kind of rally around you? Yeah. And just, mm-hmm. you know, spontaneously, it's an inspired way forward. Be really loving and encouraging to each other. It's not doofy, it's just really matter of fact, much, much more caring. And it's not, you know, it's not awkward. It, it's just, it feels a lot better. I'm so sorry this is the worst day of your life. And the person next to me suddenly said, yeah, you know, I think about the worst day of my life, you know, I'm so sorry. Well, you know, don't worry about us. We're just really sorry you're left alone and we're completely for you.
0: Beautiful. It seems like a big obstacle to getting to that point are, are these individual desires, clinging, attachment, these philosophical and spiritual traditions all seem to use similar words there. What what is the connection between maybe transcending these desires or or maybe even addictions?
1: Well I think addiction is the perfect word. Because I've got a habit red door red door is an addiction. When we look through the MRI, the movie camera MRI, the functional MRI And we ask people, you know, tell us about stressful moments in your life. People very rarely say, you know, Mm -hmm. I was stressed because I had 11 things to do, but only time for five. What really stresses people out, and again, you know, they're not stressed because I pushed myself to climb Kilimanjaro, or I grappled with learning Mandarin, or I ran farther than I'd ever run before. Challenge is not stress. Constant stress sounds like this. I have got to get that promotion. If I don't, I've got to get that promotion. I've got to get hired at this new bank. I have got to get it into this nursing school. I have got to get her to say yes. Gotta, gotta, have it. And gotta, gotta, have it, that next thing, that red door sets off a region of the brain, insulin striatum, that are the addiction centers. I've gotta have it is a way of living that we are taught starting in first grade that is actually training. It is effectively a K-12 boot camp for addiction. I've got to have it. I've got to control it. I've got to get it. It sets off a form, a stance in living, I've got to, got to, that is the same stance that's got to have drugs and got to have alcohol and got to gamble and get, and you know what, ding, it's not enough. Got to have more. It's one of those ironic, it's almost like a, like a myth, you know, a, a dark myth that the more, you get, the deeper the hole. So, we have a choice, and that is to decide individually in our lives and treat others in such a way as to not treat every moment of life like I want it, why didn't I get it, what did I do wrong, you know, to really kind of be over impressed by our mind. And instead, start thinking, wow, what is life showing me now, what did I just see here? today? Who did I just meet? And what are they passionate about in life? What gorgeous sunset? Why is it that we are given such sunsets? Big questions, little moments, things that are just this real germ of life to be a little bit more impressed with the life we're given and a little less obsessed with the stuff we think we want. It
0: it seems like, the wise person, if you're reading some of these people from the past, they're, they're writing that way. They've come to these realizations and also maybe the, the small child of the the four or five year old can see it as well. What's going on in that space in between there? Why are we losing the, that realization? Yeah, Josh is
1: such a beautiful way you put it because the child, is a naturally spiritual child. Many people say the child is a knower, the child is wise. The child is definitely not a blank slate without The child, you know, I'll give you an example. Science has shown us that unless socialized out of it, a child perceives that we can know what I might call direct knowing, intuitively, mystically, without being told. There's, we have access in our heart, to deep wisdom, and less socialized out of it. But we go to school, and the first thing we hear is, "How do you know that?" Point on the page to how you know that. Now, that's certainly one form of knowing that's very useful and important, but it is not exclusive. And the latent lesson that we only know through support of our five senses—that we only know that which we have heard or been told or read and see feel and touch—is is a very strong lesson. It's the hidden curriculum. Similar story. The child perceives continuity of consciousness or spirit after death unless socialized out of it. So we're born knowers. And again, as you say, Joshua, as elders, we become wise again. So you know, it, it doesn't need to be the case that in the sort of high impact on the earth, high impact on other people intervening 50 years, we forget. <laughs> We can raise the primacy, we can awaken to the deeper nature of life every day, whether that starts with a practice or a prayer or a meditation or a walk in nature, and then return to each little bump in life, each conflict at work, each irritating moment, from a spiritual perspective, what life is actually happening here. Why was this person put in my path, higher power? What are you showing me? How might I handle this in a loving way? That every moment is actually a spiritual exercise or an opportunity. That way of going through life is every bit as much in our nature. The post office ceremonial, where this poor woman needs our encouragement. This is, we're cooked for this, we're built for this. We have a spiritual brain and it's just a choice to use it.
0: An author that I'm a, a fan of, Richard Rohr, has stressed the point that throughout much of human history, there's these rites of passages or an initiation, and he's sometimes called today a, a society of the uninitiated. What role do you think maybe some sort of rite of passage plays to open someone's eyes? Well,
1: certainly. Certainly with emerging adulthood, late adolescence. We know this through longitudinal twin studies. There is a surge of biological clock from the inside out, and it's marked by a 50% increase in the hair level contribution to our spiritual, innate spiritual capacity, which means there's a surge from the inside out. And whether or not we're expecting it, And whether or not anyone's ever told us this is coming, the young adult, the teen hungers for meaning. Naturally, the heart yearns for connection and the numinous and the transcendent. Every culture through time has known this about puberty that with biological puberty comes an augmented spiritual hunger, capacity, need to meet meaning and not just ultimate meaning let me put it this way not just meaning in terms of you know i am a member of the tennis team or you know i am a member of this country or that but but ultimate meaning meaning what is my relationship to to the highest power to life itself what is my ultimate purpose on earth in being alive that's hardwired and from the view of body, mind and spirit, a modernist perspective, that is that is our journey. Mm. Well whether it was the sweat lodge or confirmation or barn physical puberty had been elevated as a time of spiritual growth and ceremony and rite of passage had marked this transition. I'll give you an example. It was actually Quite extraordinary, Josh. One day, teaching my class at Columbia out of the blue, a knock on the door, and I opened the classroom door to see nine Navajo girls, nine Navajo girls outside my classroom, so of course I said, come in. And standing there in front of 60 students, adult students, I said, tell us anything you want from your culture. We want to learn from you. Tell us something of the Navajo culture. Well, the ringleader, the girl who was sort of alpha girl, stepped up in front and said, well, I know, it was clear as day. You want to hear from our culture? She hits her heart and said, when I got my period in front of 60 adults, my grandma, she smudged me. And she said, run here, run there. And she put me through tests and challenges and feats for three days after which I got a huge hole and I made a cornbread for everyone in my community and then I sat in the spirit hut for three days because I knew my bigger spirituality and she stood proud integrated body, mind, spirit Bar Mitzvah Bat Mitzvah, Fellowship the Sweat Lodge Confirmation this is a rite of passage that realizes the extraordinary augmented spiritual capacity and then Turns the emerging adult to his or her community as a spiritual contributor. I made a corn cake, right? A giver. So the idea that we are wired to come of age, we are built to come of age spiritually in relation to life's ultimate presence, God, the higher power, and that which is sacred in and then through one another. Is understood through time. We finally can hold up a mirror
0: and see that through the lens of science. I love that. I appreciate you sharing that, that story. When, when I think of these initiations, as you were describing that, it, it kind of connects a bit with, with some sort of basic military training. I know you've uh, worked with the, the military here in the U.S., And it seems that there is some sort of connection there. I know there, there may be different opinions. Maybe people would call it a training, but it is a bit of a initiation in, in my eyes. But could you share a little bit of, of your work with the army and maybe how the, this research hits organizations and, and and groups in the, in the world?
1: In deep collaboration with the Pentagon, and in particular, the chief of chaplains, there's a general in the Pentagon, Chaplain Tom soldier who has spearheaded what has emerged as the spiritual readiness initiative, together with General Dingle, who's the Surgeon General in the Army, and Colonel Sam Preston, who is the chief of behavioral health, the head of psychiatry for the whole army. Together, these leaders, and it's been my great honor to work together with them, have spearheaded an army-wide initiative through which the deep spiritual core of every soldier is affirmed, strengthened, in a way that is, of course, inclusive and pluralistic. This is based on science, MRI studies, that say there's a neuroseat of spiritual awareness, Again, whether it's spirited and through nature, the power of life itself, or a theistic understanding told through Catholicism, Judaism, any of our beautiful faith traditions. So in a deeply pluralistic, inclusive, and constitutional way, this has, of course, been through JAG, the army has supported the whole soldier. Effectively, given the total dismembering of the whole young adult by mainstream current society, really disintegrating the spiritual core from the rest of the the Gen Z challenge, the army has led our entire country in putting the young adult back together again. And they do this by supporting the spiritual core, just as a soldier is fit physically, so too a soldier can be fit spiritually. We have physical fitness for the physical core, spiritual fitness for the spiritual core. The Army uses science as a roadmap to do this throughout the ranks of the Army. So this means that in, yes, basic training, a drill sergeant, FM 722-10, the new manual, Chapter 10, says that the soldier needs to be fit spiritually as well as physically and mentally. So, too, behavioral health when in times of trauma, in times of despair, depression, can work closely behavioral health with the chaplaincy so that the deep spiritual core is engaged and strengthened and even enlarged through times of suffering. You know, science is very clear about this, that in our most painful, most dead real bottoming out moments, a spiritual response leads to a deep reshuffling of meaning. So you know, people will say, You know, I had suffered for 10 years with this residual trauma, but when I brought into this memory the light of my higher power, particularly brought in the higher power in the presence of others, relational spirituality, there was a sudden reshuffling of me, and suddenly I realized that I could be forgiven, and suddenly I realized that God was with me all along, and suddenly I realized that we were not to blame this deeper, truer, wiser understanding comes not through just saying the same thing over and over, as is often the case in mainstream treatment. It's not just about weaving the narrative and being desensitized to the affect. There's a profound rearrangement of meaning that comes through a foundationally spiritual approach to not just healing, but renewal. That when we really look closely, post-traumatic growth... Goes hand in hand for most people with trauma, but what makes it happen very often is that we don't just cope or get back to baseline. But the, as Chaplain Soldier says, we are made bigger inside because there is you know, in this moment where the earth shatters under my feet and I don't know where I stand. What are you showing me, God? What is the deeper, more real part of life? And bedrock, then we hit, oh, it's love. Oh, it's that God helped me even when I was completely bottomed out. God helped me. Mm. These realizations stay with us the rest of our lives. And so we have post-traumatic spiritual growth that leads us to a whole different stance in life. We're not back to baseline. We're made more.
0: It's so fascinating. It it seems like this deeper wisdom people of the past connect it with with nature i I think of marcus aurelius's meditations i recently had a, a guest on that said the word nature is what comes up in his own personal journal more than any other word and there's all these analogies of you know what's good for the bee is good for the hive and this understanding of of impermanence that they're that they're gaining from from nature How can we today in in the modern world get connected and and absorb that that wisdom?
1: Well, science has, I think, probably one of the most beautiful testimonies to the, well, I'll just tell you the finding and let you have this experience. When we look at people who move through real pain, whether it's the death of a spouse or it's the loss of a job or foreclosure or something A precipitant. Sometimes it's not an outward precipitant. It can be an inward shift, just the bridges and chapters of life. And they move through these times of suffering and do ask, What God are you showing me now? Where do I turn? Life, what are you revealing? They go to the deeper level of life. They have a breakthrough. And much as with trauma, with despair and disappointment and depression, there's a deepening, there's really an awakening of spiritual life. And there's much more love for themselves and others and much more care and kindness and real understanding of others. There's a sense that their life is inherently purposeful, that we're all, whether we say God's children or part of life itself, there's a real awakening. Well, those people who choose to deal with with a spiritual response, and it can be a lot of work, have a breakthrough. Those folks give off a certain wavelength off the back of our head, right off the back where many traditions cover the back of the head, high amplitude alpha. High amplitude alpha is also given off, just FYI, when we jumpstart recovery with SSRIs, with medications. So the spiritually engaged brain <clears throat> gives off the wavelength that is sort of forced through SSRIs. But if you pull the SSRIs, alpha goes away. Whereas mm-hmm. treating suffering as an invitation to spiritual growth, suffering is really the ignition or the start point so that we evolve into the person ready to inherit the next station in our lives. You know, suffering is a way, sort of a call from the future it's it's really there's an arc that we're being pulled on to evolve into a more spiritually whole person well that process leads to this alpha so to give medications well that's fine but don't skip the spiritual growth because Mm -hmm. depression is not just lost time or a disease depression is an invitation to an expansion of our whole lives a much more meaningful, beautiful life. So when that happens, here's the point about nature, Josh. We give off alpha. Well, alpha, the spiritually engaged brain gives off alpha. Alpha has another name and another field, and it's Schumann's resonance. It's the vibration of nature itself from the Earth's crust up one mile all the way around the Earth the birds, the trees, the water, the mountains, life itself vibrates at the same wavelength as the spiritually engaged brain, which means that when we dial into this wavelength, well, that which is detected by this wavelength or represented by this wavelength, this deep, loving, connected consciousness field, we return to nature. We return to our nature as part of nature, and even more, that deeply felt sense of oneness where the spiritually engaged brain knows that we are loved and held, that we are part of this deep oneness of life and creation, well that felt awareness is mirrored by the measurement of a common wavelength. We rejoin the field of life, we rejoin this loving consciousness field
0: so interesting and such an important point um, a- around this idea of spiritual growth I got a question and I want to really curious about your your take on you were on uh, Scott Barry Kaufman's podcast the psychology podcast which I listen to listen to often great conversation and he wrote an article a, a while back maybe a year or so ago on spiritual growth narcissism kind of this concern of of adopting spiritual practices in what is is maybe growing is is our ego instead of a, a spiritual growth i'm curious if you have a similar concern in and, and if so how one might avoid that
1: so you know narcissism is everybody's human challenge and um you know, it, it, it's, it has to do with um, no longer feeling part of the unity of life, the flow of life. But it, it's really a very painful form of separateness for ourselves and everyone around us, in which we constantly want to know: Am I bigger or littler than the guy next to me? Am I bigger or am I more worthy or less worthy? Um, and it you know can attach itself to outward things like who has more money, or who has a nicer looking job, or who has a better car, or you know, who has this little insignia or that little insignia on their clothes or purse or car, but but whatever it attaches itself to, it's inside of us that is that is busily calibrating our size and stature compared to others, and that is a very lonely way to live, it is very lonely, because it totally precludes a deep sisterhood or brotherhood, you know, to wonder how big or little I am next to the person next to me. Did you get a 96 when I got a 87? Did, you know, you just get into the University of Arizona Medical School and I, I was just turned out everywhere. Well, you know, that, that way of living puts us into comparison as opposed to in relationship to what is life offering now. What is like showing now? Who of all people on earth, you brought by my side, are we here to discover, to love, to give? this sort of symphony of life is completely lost in the joy and the newness and the connective tissue, none of it, when I'm very busily adding myself up against the other. It's very lonely, it's very limiting. Well, that can attach to anything, and it certainly can attach, you know, who's traveled more, who knows more about religion, actually who's more spiritual, right? It's a little tricky, slippery part of ourselves, but we can all work through it, too, and I think when it comes to spiritual narcissism, this sort of tricky, slippery attachment of I'm big stuff because I had this fabulous transcendent experience, you know, it's very, I think, easy to, to answer one's self and say that was a gift, that had a purpose, that was given you to do something, and if someone else doesn't seem oh so spiritual, maybe Maybe they did that in another life. Maybe they have things you don't even know they do. You know, I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. I'll give you an example. I was on vacation once. Very, 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 very moving story. So I was on vacation, um, and we're sitting by the pool, and there's all these folks sitting in the pool watching their kids swim. And I, you know, most of them were really in the water playing with their kids. You know, really engaged parents. But you know, I, I have to confess, I. I probably was a little judgmental. There was one mom who didn't get in the water at all with her kids and she sat there and she's doing her nails and then she was like reading some silly magazine about makeup and I thought, wow, she's shallow. And I, I judged her, right? I thought, she's not as engaged a mom as all these good moms in the water. She's not as deep and, and sort of significant in the way she thinks about life because she's doing her nails and reading these silly magazines. Well, the last day came. This is on a week-long vacation. And I happened, you know, life has a way of teaching us and showing us. I happened that there was one seat open by the pool. I got there a little late. It was 11, and it was by her. So I laid out my towel, aware of my judgmental feelings, sat down next to her, and said, yeah, it's our last day here. How about you? And she said, yeah, that's too." She said, we actually came as guests because last year, you know, and she reminded me, there had been a fire. Josh, it was extraordinary. This place had gone up in smoke a year ago. And she said, Well, it was so nice. The owner had us back grab us because he wanted to thank us. And I said, Well, tell me what happened. And she said, Oh, well, last year we met this other family here by the pool, and we they'd gone out to dinner for their anniversary, and their kids were in the hotel. Well, the place went up in smoke. And we were sitting on the dock, and I looked around, and I didn't see our kids. So I thought, hey, those kids are probably still in the hotel. And I grabbed the bartender, and the two of us went up to the third floor, banged down the door. Well, there were the kids. with a babysitter who was scared stiff, we got them out just in the nick of time.
0: Wow. So
1: this woman has saved the life of those kids. And all week I'd been thinking about how shallow she was. And it really showed me that we don't know what each other do, but we all have our own ways of loving and giving. And it's easy to remember when we just ask people their stories.
0: I love that. And I, I thank you so much for for sharing. It seems that we are all so prone of this uh in internal judgment that that pops up to do you think sometimes the, the best we can do is, is notice it and, and catch ourselves?
1: Well, I, I I do think that when other people tell us their stories and we really listen, mm. we realize what an extraordinary miracle is found in each and every one of us. And and you know we all know this, but as a practice, to really listen to each other's stories, get each other talking. Mm -hmm. Each person carries this whole world, this universe in them, this huge life where they've really done very powerful and loving things. So I've been hearing each other's stories. And then, of course, like you say, reminding ourselves and then whatever one's spiritual practice might be to open up our heart, to see more clearly, to see God's presence or the presence of life or spirit in each and every living
0: being well i love it i've got just a a quick wrap-up question that i ask most guests i i think you've been answering this question throughout the entire conversation but how do you define or or think about wisdom in daily life lisa i
1: think of wisdom as hearing the call paying attention and to the best of our awareness, hmm. meeting the ask.
0: That is great. I, I love it. Um, and again, the, the book for the listeners is The Awakened Brain. I highly recommend. We'll link it in the in the show notes. But what's the best place to go for people that are interested in learning more about you and your work in the world?
1: Thanks, Josh. I would welcome people to look at The Awakened Brain, the book, as you shared, and perhaps go online, LisaMillerPhD.com. And then we have the Spirituality Mind and Body Institute, as you shared, that hosts events, and you're most welcome to join us. Many of these events are online. We just had Awakened Campus, in which 500 university leaders and people all concerned with young adults from the army, from private sector, from health and human services came together. So the Spirituality Mind by the Institute welcomes, welcomes you. Uh, but the waking brain has the science, and based on this science, I think we can all work within our own bands of contribution to wake each other up lovingly.
0: Well, lovely. Dr. Lisa Miller, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom and your work in the world.
1: Josh, thank you. I really appreciate this deeply held conversation. You're a great guide.
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right through your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.